Victoria Wick was born in South Korea and moved to the US as a young teenager. She went from a penniless immigrant to building a business with over $500 million in sales. This episode, Victoria speaks on starting her jewellery empire as well as giving priceless business advice such as the power of consistency in closing sales and so much more. Until about 10, 11, you know, you're just a kid. You don't know anything. You think, you know, you know some things. But basically, th there was no difference between a rich kid and a poor kid because you're all in the same playground, you know, pretty much the thing, same thing. Uh, when you're about 12 going on to 13, that's when you start to, you know, interact with kids that are a little bit older than you. When you go to school, you got kids that are, you know, 13, 14, 15. Mm. Um, and then they have siblings that are 17, 18. So yeah. um, those are tough years. When, when we first moved here, um, Basically, my father came here because he had four four daughters. Yeah. So um, in South Korea at that time, and it still is a little bit like that today, that uh, women, uh, you know, girls' uh, opportunities were limited. You know, we were supposed to procreate and find our, you know, the right guy and, you know, basically listen to orders and support him. And uh, and it, there was very little difference, you know, the social class, the wealth, it doesn't matter. That was just a culture. So my father brought us here to America and, um, you know, he wasn't really rich or anything, but we were very comfortable. And um, he found out that all the money that he had were frozen in both countries. All our assets were frozen. Korea was run by a dictator at that time. And, um, you know, nobody left with money because mm. it was a poor country in the first place. So we started our lives here in America with 30 bucks that he had in his pocket. And as you can imagine, that was pretty rough. Um, he didn't speak English. My parents, you know, my mom didn't, she had never worked a day in her life until then. He had uh, five kids and, you know, pretty much the very next day, he, he just went to the local gas station and started pumping gas. That's how my life began here. Yeah. So, so you kind of were just kind of thrown into American culture. You know, there was no, especially because I'm assuming this was, you know, pre-internet, pre the world we live in now. Oh, yeah. You had yeah, no yeah. idea what America was outside of television. So you're thinking big cars, burgers and, and, and big people. And then now you're finally here. You're getting like immersed in the culture. Yeah, so yeah. going through your, your teenage years as an American and as, a, as an immigrant, what was that experience like for you? Were you kind of accepted straight away or was there like friction between, you know, the, the at home life versus the at school life? Oh, huge. I mean, first off, uh, in 1972, uh, in the early 70s, if you recall, you're probably too young to recall that, but uh, you probably, <laughs> you probably yeah. have heard of it. Mm. So 1960s uh, was the decade of uh, civil rights movement here in America. It was right after, you know, all the, the Martin Luther King, all that stuff was happening right in the 60s. So 1970s, they were America as a country was sort of like living uh, with the aftermath of all that and mm. trying to heal and then there was the war. So there was all the anti-war movement going on, you know. So I'm just a kid uh, living on this little island. I never, We never even really had TV because we had TVs, but uh, where we lived, the connections didn't get that far. Um, and even in this country, you know, uh, back then we had three channels, you know, before the cable, all that stuff. So uh, what happened was you came here and um, I lived, because we didn't have money, we lived in the poorest parts of town where we had the black kids, the Hispanic kids, you know, there was all these gangs. Uh, still is today that area, um, you know, not much progress has happened. So I had to grow up very quickly and uh, figure out, you know, oh, my gosh, like uh, it was nothing. So, you know, I have to tell you something funny. When we moved here, the first point of entry from South Korea to America was Hawaii. So we mm. had to stop in Hawaii because it was halfway point. 
And when we landed there, there were beautiful breezes, you know, they were playing aloha music at the airport. And I was like, oh my God, this is like total paradise. The weather is beautiful, sun shining, you know, they got Mai Tais and uh, uh, pineapples everywhere, right? And then uh, I had never seen pineapple before. And then when we landed in, in LA, and then when we ended up in this, you know, area, it was like, oh my God, what happened? So it was really rough. And, um, you know, I had to honor um, my, we, we just didn't even know if we could even stay here for, for the whole first year, if we can survive mm. a year. And um, so, you know, I had to honor my Korean culture, which was to just listen to your parents. You know, they were always right. All your elders are right. And uh, you couldn't question anything because that would just be bad manners. And then you go to school and then, you know, these kids were just, you know, doing everything, you know, whatever. And so I had a lot of responsibilities between, and I was actually raising my um, siblings because my parents immediately both ended up working two jobs each. So I never, you know, they went to work about 630 in the morning uh, every day, seven days a week. Um, And then they, you know, their shifts were done about one o'clock in the afternoon. And then they would go to the second job from there. So, you know, I, they left before sunrise. They came home after sun, you know, after it was dark. So later on in my life, um, that's one of the reasons I started my business because my childhood really was kind of taken away overnight. Mm. And the one thing I didn't have was I had unlimited time with my mom until, um, we came here and then I really didn't see her for almost years. It, it's just like, I saw her for meals, you know, she check on me and things like that. But so, you know, uh, when I started my business, it was really uh, with that one focus is to help my kid. You know, I didn't want to abandon my kids the way my mother had to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, it was rough times, but I'm not here to complain about it because I think that um, all those experiences, when you embrace it uh, become, um, sort of a strength that fuels you for later on in life yeah because a lot of people that grow up in these kind of lower income or shall we say less favorable places they tend to get this kind of hustler's ambition in them they get this kind of spirit in them where they're like i need to get something going i need to get this done you know some people go you know the the, the, say the bad route of you know drugs and all that kind of gang life but for you you were like oh my gosh as much as i don't want to be here i don't want to live like this and i want to you know do better you also saw that having to do better would take away a lot of your time from being around your family. And so one thing that I've kind of noticed about what you you said in other interviews and other places is you built your business around your family. So even though you were waking up at the crack of dawn and working till late at night, there were pockets and windows of time that were, you know, hard blocked out for, right, I'm taking the kids to school here and I'm going to be with the yeah. children in the afternoon activities. How, how does that work? And how did you kind of come to that realization you were able to do something like that? Yeah, you know, so much of uh, my whole life story was kind of trial and error. And I would say if you have to sum it up in a one, two, three sentence pitch, it's the resilience and never giving up Mm. and also never compromising. So there are some things uh, I'm extremely flexible and compromisable, but there are some things that that I would never bend. And one of those things was time with my children. I was willing to live on 2000 bucks a month. I was willing to live on you know, almost nothing to be with them because that's the one thing that I, that I didn't have, that I had no control over. Um, so when I grew up, um, I realized that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of um, adults uh, think that, 
they have to work really hard. They have to put in those long hours. Even if you're working for some, you know, company and the company asks you to work, you know, Saturdays and Sundays and you got to go on a plane, you know, go to another country and, you know, kind of sacrifice your family life for this week. And then two weeks later to another week. Um, you think that that's the best thing you could do for your family because you are providing for them. Okay. The things they need and a big house, the car, you know, the college tuition, whatever. Um, and that when you are really successful, after you get to a certain point, you can spend all this time with your family. Mm. Well, your children aren't waiting for you to make the money before they grow up. <laughs> you know what I mean? They grow up uh, with influences that you have no control over. You know, they go to school, they get, you know, basically education from their teachers. You have no idea what they're being taught. Um, they are surrounded with children uh, with, you know, who may not be good their friends may not be actually good for their kids. I mean, they may, cause you're very impressionable at those years. Mm, so yeah. um, I decided that the one thing that can't wait is my kids growing up and I want to be a part of it. So I was willing to give up almost everything in my life for that. And so I did work uh, those extreme shifts. You know, I worked from like a, a lot of times I'd get up at five, five thirty, but I was actually at work at six o'clock, no matter what. 6, 6.30. So 6.30 to about 8, you know, when my kids uh, went to, you know, now nowadays we have cell phones, but I'm glad we didn't have cell phones because in those days when I had my kids in my car, you know, we had conversations, you know, about what they're going to do, um, the mindset they were going to go into school with. Um, you know, I mean, I don't know how much control I had, but I would tell them about, you know, hey, when I was a kid, you know, these things would happen. So how to handle conflicts and, you know, things like that. Um, it was like a 10 minute ride to school, but then, um, and I worked when they were in school, but as soon as they got off school, I basically spent a hundred percent of my time with them. They were then my priority. Um, so those were, you know, kind of tough on, uh, for my mind as well as physically, you know, but I did it for a few years and then I didn't really have to do that much anymore because I, I could delegate after three years, I was able to delegate all, all my stuff to employees because I was able to hire them. Mm. You know, I did my first million like in the first 18 months or so. So I was able, immediately I was able to hire people. Uh, I hired people in UK for my accounts in UK, UK and, and France. And I hired people in Japan, you know. So basically um, I was then able to spend more time with my kids and, and my mom, you know, uh, my parents uh, were still, um, you know, learning to speak English, learning the culture, because it's a little bit uh, harder for the older people to kind of get acclimated. Yeah, you're set in your ways once you come to it. Even though you've come to the country, <laughs> you'd love to sit around and go, oh, let me immerse myself in the culture. But you're just like, I've yeah. got to get going. I've got kids. I've got things to do. So yeah. probably yeah. in their retirement or old, later years is when they got a chance to actually become, a, a, a quote unquote, Americanized. Yeah. And, you know, um, I uh, my father was kind of amazing because he made all those sacrifices. He never talked about how you know tough life was. He never talked about how unfair you know all the money was taken away, all that. Uh, but the one thing he did say though is that if you're going to get ahead in life in America, the last thing you want to do is go to school, you know, talk to no one, come home and watch Korean TV because you're never going to learn to speak English. You're never going to learn the culture. Just shut it off and uh, just like you were, you know, in because in Korea we didn't actually get TV. Um, you know, study, do whatever you have to do to advance your life here in America. So, you know, um, while we honor my tradition, like the family tradition and all that, which is beautiful, I, I don't want to ever let go of that. But there are some beautiful things about the Western culture that I just loved, you know, how open they were to new ideas, 
how uh, flexible they were and how friendly. I mean, they most of the times when you get to, to know people on one-on-one, um, they are, you know, they root for you. They root for just because I didn't have any money, I didn't speak English. You know, some of the kids were cruel, but a lot of the kids were kind of cheering for you because mm-hmm. they, they could see a, a little bit of part of their vulnerability in me. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, things kind of worked out pretty good. Yeah. Because yeah. one thing I'm getting from what you just kind of said and mixed in with what you just said is uh, you were an intentional parent rather than most people that tend to be accidental parents. It's, oh, I've got to go do this with the kids. Okay, I want to go do this. Okay, find a babysitter for the kids. You were like, no, I want to raise my children. I want to make sure yeah. I'm imparting my values and my wisdom into my right. children. And I, I guess you're kind of, even though you were saying your parents weren't around as much because they were working, you were getting that from your own parents. So you were just passing down the good things that you'd already learned and had kind of spent your time around. But one thing I'm quite kind of like trying to figure out, like is you said you were on, well, I don't know if you're on TV selling jewelry straight away, but when you started your business, you know, that is still a very hard time is in you're, you're going to start out as one person doing everything. And then when right. you hire, you know, one person, two people, three people, you're still one yeah. person managing these three, four people. So right. how did you kind of, managed all that time as in what what was the kind of because yeah everyone's got secrets and life hacks or whatever but you didn't have any you know downtime you would just have to be on the go all the time until you went to sleep how did you manage all that yeah so I'm so glad you asked that because nobody's really kind of asked that before but here here's the thing I used to be uh, such a uh, fanatical freak about you know I was like a control freak Mm. and I was a perfectionist so you know, everything always had to be perfect. Um, you know, my house was absolutely sanitized all the time. <laughs> Before um, COVID, it was it was 100% clear. Oh, yeah, it, it was like a clearer than a hospital. I'm, t- I'm telling you, like I would, um, you know, get on top of chairs and, uh, you know, vacuum the ceiling, all this stuff. I was just like a very, very into that. Because, you know, my mom, when she didn't work mm. uh, all my life, she had uh, help at home. She had like a, 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 we had a cook at home. We had a cleaning, you know, crew at home. Uh, we had a driver because that's very culturally, uh, you know, the middle class people had all this money back then. Um, and, and she was still cleaning things. So when I came, when I came here, I did the same thing. Um, but then when my kids came, I was like, you know what? Like, why am I doing all this? This is insane. Right. You know, the toys are on the floor. Like as long as they're clean and sanitary, you know, I'm not going to fuss over all this because I'm spending all my time doing that. So what happened was in my business, um, at first I did everything. I mean, I had notes just, I mean, I had ledgers of who I called, what time of the day, what they said, all this stuff. Um, so I had meticulous notes cause we didn't have computers back then, you know, mm. all of this. And I used to type all these letters and I, you know, it was just like endless amount of work. Then when my kids, um, when my daughter was growing up, like she was just moving around and you couldn't like just put her to a, like when they're first born, they're sleeping all the time. Yeah. Uh, at that point, I realized, oh, my God, there is no way I could be uh, the perfect mother and the perfect businesswoman and, uh, you know, whatever. So a lot of things actually went. And at that point, I had to realize, OK, you know, some customers are going to are not worth my time. OK, some customers are, are not going to be if they're going to cause me, you know, 20 hours a week because they needed to be you know, handheld all the time and I'm going to get a thousand dollar order. It's not it's not worth it. There was a time when I actually chased all that. But at that point, I was like, okay, who are the 20% of the people that's making all this, you know, all the money for me? Because it, the pattern was pretty clear. So I just hung, I serviced them. 
And even those people, I would tell them, you know what, I, I have, I'm a brand new mom, I have young kids, you know, and I've got to get to a soccer game. And, you know, would it be possible if we can talk about this tomorrow? Okay. Um, so and in those days in America, like, if you if uh, an employer knew that you had a kid or you were pregnant, they didn't have to hire you. This was actually legal. I was going to say, time. yeah, th- there wasn't any ethics back then. It was like, no, oh, well, yeah, you're, you're a woman. Legal. Okay, yeah. we'll give you a chance. Oh, you have children. Oh, oh you're pregnant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> and they'll give you jobs that are very replaceable, like a secretary, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, also, um, when we were looking for apartments, when my father was looking for apartments, they would say, you know, your girls are so adorable. They look so well-mannered, but... You know, we, uh, we're not supposed to rent to Orientals. And that was legal because the fair housing laws didn't come into play until like 1976. Mm. So, um, you know, all of these things were there. But um, so I had to let go of, you know, the idea that, um, you know, I'm going to service everybody all the time because that those two things couldn't play. So I, when I prioritize my kids, you know, who, which are the customers that I can live without? Like that, I, I'd hate to lose customers because mm. it takes so much time to get one. And everybody who's giving you a thousand dollar order can give you a million dollar order at some point. I'm a hundred thousand dollar order at some point. But uh, right now I need to start to like, um, you know, organize my life. So I first thing I did was I started to let go of some of the customers. And and also I didn't even write to some of the customers that I thought didn't have the potential. So I had to make some of the judgments. Um, and I grew just the, just the top ones. And then um, also when I hired people, I couldn't afford to hire top notch people. Um, I hired, you know, um, I went to a place called Careers for Older Americans, uh, which was a lot of retirees who just retired. And they're like, oh, my God, I got all this time on my hands. What do I do? Like, There's only so much volunteer work to do. And I need a little extra money. So, you know, they're like 60 years old, 65 years old. And all of a sudden, like they want to come back to work for just two, three days a week. So I heard some sometimes like that. And then a lot of the college kids. They had no experience or willing to do anything for you. So I did that. Now, what happens is when you hire people that are, you know, that have all this energy and they're eager to help you, they're eager to please you, but they don't have any experience, they make a lot of mistakes. Mm. Um, And um, some of those mistakes, I just had to let them make it and learn from them. And so eventually I ended up with the system so that no matter which kid I ended up with, there's like a little checklist and there's, uh, you know, so I, it, we, we did get computers like second year after I was in business and we were able to put in systems in place. For example, you know, one of my employees uh, years ago, and this was a, almost like a catastrophic mistake. Um, he, so I got an order from a large company. It was about a $300,000 order. It was a huge order. It, it, was, it meant everything to us at that time. Um, so the person ordered um, a yellow gold, you know, it was an emerald suite. So it had, suite means necklace, earrings, uh, a ring, and a bracelet. So the whole set mm. of things. And what happened was all in yellow gold, um, em, you know, emerald stones. What happened was when he placed that order with our manufacturer, he didn't specify it. So some of it came, half of it came in. Um, so the pendant and the ring came in yellow gold and earrings and the bracelet came in white gold. I couldn't sell any of it. My buyer said, you know, I can't take any of this because, you know, no one's going to buy uh, mixed match stuff. And um, so I can't take any of it. Now, an order that size, you can't all of a sudden get up tomorrow morning and go, oh, dude, I can, if, I, if she's not going to take it, I can take it to somebody else. Nobody can kind of like float that kind of money. And it was for uh, May, Mother's Day. And May is the birthstone for, you know, uh, Emerald is a birthstone for May. So I had to, you know, like, uh, ask her if she could take it for Christmas. So now my cash flow is stuck there for 
you know, till December. Mm. But also I have to go melt down the pieces that were made wrong. So I have to pay for that as well, which kind of sucked up all my profit for that whole thing. Okay. I, I didn't make a penny out of it. Um, but from that point on though, every, you know, all of our style numbers now, and if you want to input anything, it has to have WG, like white gold or YG as a part of a style number. So, you know, nobody ever made that mistake again, ever. Yeah. So, you know, basically I let my, I had to let go of some control and let my employees. Uh, so all the little things that, you know, that could go wrong in a company, I, I was forced to deal with that pretty early on. Yeah. So later on when they sticks got bigger, you know, remember I went from uh, 1 million to 10 million in the next two years. So all those mistakes were kind of eliminated. Um, you know, so basically I have a company at, some, you know, about three years into the company in my journey, I had a company that nobody could make a mistake, catastrophic mistake because I, you know, everybody made it before that. So yeah. it worked out fine. Yeah. So when you're scaling up from, you know, let's say hundred thousand to a million to 10 million, you're sticking with the same suppliers or you're kind of going like oh this supplier can't meet our needs let's go to the next supplier like how are you finding the the first supplier because i'm assuming you're getting them manufactured in asia and then importing right. it back over to here so it, you know in a time pre-internet and all this kind of stuff were you having to fly over fly back find suppliers like what was that like so um there used to be this thing called a fax machine and uh i think like my first fax machine was like a thousand bucks or something it was just very it was a kind of new technology at the time so i used to draw and though usually um my fax machines were only like black and white so i used to draw them out send it um and i did a lot of faxing back and forth you know i would send them like 30 pages because you know it would be like every six seconds you, you can send a page uh, and sometimes I would do two drawings in a in a page. So basically, I would do two, 30, 40 designs and send it to my prospective buyers. And there was a lot of dialogue by fax before then. And um, so, you know, I, I did have to fly to um, Asia like uh, twice a year just to make sure that the models are made correctly and things like that. Mm -hmm. But mostly a lot of the design work back and forth with my customers were done by fax because I didn't have the luxury of flying, you know, the time to fly or the money. So and it worked out fine. I mean, they got to see a lot more. They actually preferred it that way, you know, that they got to, uh, you know, to have almost like a live stream of, you know, because when you fly with samples, you got the one. And they can say, I like this, I don't like that. Then you got to go back and make new samples. The way I did it was I basically tweaked the designs until they liked it. And then, you know, we would make those samples. And once they say, oh, I love it, I love this, I love that, and change this, change that, and I want this bigger, I want that smaller, you know, and I want this to be a little bit more curvy. You do all that stuff, you make the sample exactly the way they want it. They rarely would say, oh, I changed my mind, I don't want it. Yeah. So it actually, um, the fact that I didn't have the money to travel, wine and dine anybody, that actually, in the end, became very efficient way to do business okay so because i know most people when they're trying to design a product you know because essentially jewelry is still a product they will go to the supplier and be trying to make something and then they'll go to the buyer but you were doing it the other way around buyer first. right first yeah oh right. yeah why, why make something that without even knowing that there's any demand for it yeah, yeah. that's insanity and so when you're so when you're finding buyers then where were you finding them because i'm assuming you kind of had some experience in the jewelry industry beforehand and then decided to kind of go on your own so did you kind of like pinch a few clients from your old employer or did you like go out and just be like oh this is a jeweler jewelers need jewelry or you know wh where was your first yeah. big buyers because to go from where you went to to millions and millions you know there's got to be some big buyers out there surely 
Yeah, there were a lot of buyers. So, um, you know, basically, I think that, you know, I didn't really. So first of all, I did work for a small jewelry company that was very rapidly growing. They did only one thing that was uh, gold chains. And um, chains are sold in a different way. But what I did, I did have some, uh, so the manufacturing process between chains and what I do is very different. Yeah, rings are a lot more intricate. Necklaces is like you just do lengths and that's it. All those links are done by machines. Mm. So, you know, you'd have a, one wire going one way. So it's almost like a, like a fabric weave. It'll, it'll weave and then you can pound it flat. That becomes a herringbone chain. If you leave it alone, it's like a rope chain. Um, so there's a different way you link it. It's all done by a machine and it's on a spool, you know, just thousands of yards of spools. And then you, they just cut it and they put the clasp on the back. That's very different than uh, what I do, which is basically cast wax. You know, make a mold for each design. It goes into an oven. It bake, gets baked out. So uh, what happened was I did have a little bit of experience, but none of the manufacturers I dealt with uh, in my previous job actually came into play when, he, when I started my own company. And it's by design. I mean, my boss was really great for me and to me. And uh, he was an immigrant from Morocco, Morocco himself. And, um, you know, he had a really hard life uh, just living the American dream, but he was very fair to everyone. And whenever I made mistakes, and I made, trust me, a lot of mistakes in that company, uh, he never, ever raised his voice. I mean, he said, like, oh, so, you know, oh, you know, and I would feel so bad when I made mistakes. I'd feel so bad. I would just say, oh, my God, I don't know. I, you know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. You know, I would, you know, it just it bombed. And he would say to me, Victoria, sit down. Like, so we learn. And it could be $100,000 mistake. He, his first thing is like, so we learned. And um, so, you know, I, um, Later on, I would actually impart that kind of uh, spirit of encouragement to my own employees. But I made a deal with him when I left because he didn't want me to leave. Um, and I told him I have to leave because I cannot sustain this lifestyle of, you know, uh, an hour and a half each way commute. Plus, you know, to be fair, as an employee to you, I'd have to work and I, you know, at least 10 to 12 hours a day. And, and I still have so much work left to do. Mm. Um, and I can't, you know, I, uh, something's got to go. And so this job has to go. So basically when I left, I made a deal with him that I would never compete with him and that I would never uh, take another job from somebody else without giving him a chance first if my business failed. You had a pretty safe leaving agreement there because most people kind of just go off and go, right, I've got, you know, nothing going on. I'm going to try this. But it's like, I left my job to start a very similar job and I could go back to my old job if I needed to. So right, you had right, a little bit yeah, of safety. Yeah. Yeah, we actually uh, stayed friends uh, for 30 years after that. Um, so what happened was I left. And then um, the first thing I did is, you know, I said, so my started my business in 1989, which was in the middle of the Reagan, the Ronald Reagan recession, depression. So we had a great ride and then the economy went into a complete halt. Mm. You know, the interest rates were like 18% and, you know, people you know, foreclosures were happening left and right. So it was a complete meltdown of an economy. And then I started my business right in the middle of that. So I said to myself, okay, well, who's going to buy jewelry? And uh, so, you know, my mind said the people that are buying jewelry still, they're still traveling. People, planes are flying somewhere, but they're still traveling somewhere. They're, you know, people are still vacationing. They're luxurious people. So we used to have uh, a whole industry of people called travel agencies. And they, you know, the idea that we are now booking our own airline tickets and all that, that was completely not even in existence at that time. So the travel agents used to have these books that are, you know, huge books of all the resorts, all the stores, all the, you know, wonderful destinations. And I would go downstairs and I would borrow it. I would actually borrow it and say, hey, do you mind if I borrow 
um, this list because I, I'm starting my business and I would write down, you know, names and things like that. Now you could have bought those books. It was like a thousand bucks and I didn't want to, I didn't have money to do it. So every day I would write to 50 people and then every day there'll be a phone number or whatever. So here's, here's a quick lesson for you guys, for anybody who is uh, aspiring to get one of these big accounts. The thing I learned is this, you know, and I learned this over time uh, is that when you first, you know, write to them, you know, they ignore you. The first thing is they ignore you, okay? Because they don't know you. You know, hey, hey, I'm Sam from, you know, uh, Sam Inc. And they're like, who's that? Boom, you know, it goes out the, in the trash. So what I do is um, I used to, you know, instead of like printing these fancy catalogs, this is how jewelry were sold back then, huge, beautiful, you know, glossy catalogs. You know, they used to cost money, thirty-five dollars to $50,000 every time you print those. Um, I would just take the, the pictures with my Polaroid of, the jewelry designs that I had and I would send them, Hey, you know what? This uh, is, you know, so hot off the press. Like it didn't actually make it to the, you know, to, to our last printing. And uh, you know, we curated just, just, just these four pieces that nobody has except, you know, you could have it. In fact, we don't even have samples made yet. And I would do them like once a week. So what happens is, you know, you send them once a week and every once in a while I would send a FedEx package. Like, a, so, cause when it comes to FedEx, they always open it to figure out who that is. So, you know, uh, if it's a really big account every fourth week or so, I would do that. Now, what happens is, you know, uh, the way the the, uh, the big stores work is this. You know, if you're at Harrods London, if you're at Galleries Lafayette, any of these stores, these buyers are under a lot of pressure, extreme pressure to find something new because you never want to go to Harrods and buy the same thing twice. OK, because <laughs> you remember. So they have to find they have to have something new in their cases every two weeks. That's, that's the one thing. Second thing is they have to produce, they always have to anniversary their numbers. They always have to increase their sales. So, and the third thing about life is, I don't care if you're a great buyer. Um, you know, it's like, if you're a great baseball player, you know, you're, um, you probably don't know baseball, but like here in uh, America, you know, we have some iconic baseball players like uh, Jackie Robinson, Babe Ruth, you know, they, Babe Ruth, but I think I heard it was like a 400 or something, which means out of the 10 times he's on the bat, like on the batting box, he's only hitting four out of 10, which means six times, you know, he's not doing it. And this is the best in history. Yeah. Okay. So today, you know, like uh, the guys who are making hundred million dollars or whatever, they're, they're, they're aspiring to do that. They're, they haven't done it yet, which means if you're a, a, like a department store buyer, you know, if you're hitting consistently uh, 50% of the time, you're doing pretty well because the margins are pretty good. What that means is sometimes you have some bad buys. 50% of the time, you got really bad buys. And so you got every other day, average. One day you're like, oh my God, this is selling like crazy. The next day you're like, oh my God, that was a bomb. My boss is going to kill me. I mean, oh, the phone's ringing. So there's all this pressure. So what happens is when the boss is telling you, you know, we spent all that money advertising. We did all this stuff. We did all the promo. You know, we were on BBC, all this stuff. And then the whole thing bombed. Like, you know, what the hell happened? Well, what happens is the buyer is, like, oh my God, like, you know what? I depended on this, my, my vendor, he's, he's old, you know, he's stale, he's this and that. I need to find a new vendor like tomorrow. When that happens, you know, it's hard for them to find a new vendor tomorrow that can actually deliver goods if you're Harrods, right? So you're looking at, you know, like, yeah, I better go find a new vendor. You know, I get these mail, you know, I get mail and I get faxes all day long, all the time. So she's looking through her trash, literally. <laughs> she's just frantically this, opening boxes and going, what's in here? What, what can yeah. I do? Yeah. If you're doing this um, all the time, 
first of all, if you're sending it to her once a week, the chances of your last communication being in that little box is pretty high, mm. number one. And number two, she's looking at all the faxes and, you know, she, and she's like, to her, you know, um, you know that one, the assistant's like, you know, go find a new, you know, new vendor like tomorrow. What happens is the assistant says, you know, that woman named Victoria something, you know, God. And then the buyer is like, that name sounds so familiar. Well, it's because I've been writing to her for 52 weeks, right? Mm. That name sounds so familiar. Uh, yeah, go get, go get her. You know, the one thing we know at least about her is that she tries hard and she's consistent and, you know, she means, you know, she's probably somebody pretty big who can afford to do that. So you get the call. So it's not like you have this fabulous product, you call them and they go, oh, I want it. It doesn't happen like that. It's a process of training, you know, it's a process, you know, and it's today. Um, and I'll tell you how that translates today because you might go, oh, that was years ago. But you know, you know what, today it's, it's very similar in that uh, all the marketing research shows that if you're trying to sell a Lexus or a Tesla, um, rarely somebody goes in and says, you know what? I'm in the middle of COVID. I'm sick and tired of this life. And I think I'm going to just go buy a Tesla tomorrow. Mm. And he's not going to walk in the first Tesla dealer and buy it. It's not, it's not like that. There's a reason why a lot of your BMW dealers, Tesla dealers, they are now in the city centers. They're not you know, some 40 miles away from the city because what they find is that a person coming in and says, you know what, I'm going to check it out. You know, I don't want to really buy it, but those are sleek cars. I'm going to check, check it out. They check it out. You know, eh, you know, it's really, really good. It's expensive. A couple of days later, you know, they're running around with their friends at lunchtime and they're like, hey, you want to check out the Tesla? Yeah. You know, I saw that. Yes. So what happens is they are saying that it takes up to 26 touch points before they'll buy something like this. And even if they decided to buy the Tesla, they're not, they may not buy it from you. They may buy it from somebody else next door. Mm. So mm. the idea that you come up with something so tremendous, you're so ir irresistible, people are going to flock to you the first day. That's not going to happen. That's an illusion. So first you do have to have a great product that adds value to people's lives, but then you have to offer it, you know, multiple times until they're convinced that they need it and that the best person to buy it from is from you because they trust you. You're likable, you're lovable, and you're vulnerable. And, you know, but you, if you walk into some room and say, you know, I'm Sam and I'm lovable and I'm successful, buy from me, they're going to think you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know I, what I mean? They're going to think it's a guy's egotistical and, you yeah, know, whatever. And, and you're not that. So what happens is um, you do want to have, you know, today's entrepreneurs, you want to kind of expedite that building trust level quickly. And there's, you know, a lot of different ways you can actually do that. And that's what I actually teach now is how to gain that trust and respect pretty quickly, like within the first few times you you, you touch them. Yeah, because as a business owner or as someone who's starting a business, you're constantly battling that statistic of X percent of businesses fail within the first two to five years. I don't know the exact numbers, but you know. It, it's uh, like 75%. Yeah, a lot of businesses close in that time. And so the way to kind of beat that failure is just to keep iterating, to keep doing one thing or something lots and lots of times and not really going like, oh, if I do this a hundred times, then I'm going to get, you know, 40 sales. It's like, I'm just going to keep doing this <laughs> until sales keep coming. Now, obviously there is that part where you, you know, you kind of learn and you go, oh, okay, that wasn't so good that, you know, that worked and that didn't. And so with, with your business, where you're constantly sending out your samples or your, your designs, did, was there any kind of moments where you were like, oh, that's not working so well. Let me change that. You know, 
were there any moments like that? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I think the um, I th- I think my cultural uh, background of you know the Korean culture and the American culture. I think the melding of the two really um, helped in my outlook. Uh, for example, you know, instead of like um, in in Asian culture, it's a lot about patience. You know, like even in medical um, treatment, it's a lot about patience. Like, you know, my father who actually became a doctor here uh, eventually. But he would say that in um, in Asia, like if you go to see a doctor, a doctor would tell you, you know, for example, let's say you have, uh, you know, a heart condition that, you know, you ate a lot of cholesterol for 30 years and now you've got a high blood pressure, you got heart con- condition. Um, in America, you know, they'd give you some pill or some injection, some treatment and you're done. Uh, in Asia, they would say, you know, it took you 40 years to get to this condition. It's not going to be fixed with the pill. Mm. So you're going to have to change your lifestyle. You're going to have to do this. You're going to do that. You know, it's going to take, you know, it took you 40 years, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't have the technology that we have today, but it's still going to take you a good five years or so of training your body again, you know, so it's, it's slower, slower pace. So I, in my mind, I had this instant, like, oh my God, send out a hundred, you know, uh, direct mail letters, and then you're going to get 10 back. And then I have, on the other hand, you know, send 20 letters and nurture them. So I had this, you know, like a opposing uh, views that are happening literally inside my own head. So I was able to actually do both at the same time. You know, I was able to send out a bunch of uh, letters every day to kind of float the idea to see what's working, what, what's, what's actually, you know, getting responses. But I have the 20 that I knew that I had to. Um, so the 20 that I had, let's talk about that. Uh, the first thing when you send out and you're, you're a no-known name in, in any industry, the first thing you're going to get is either I- ignorance. They said they ignore you, so you don't exist in their mind. Uh, but the best thing that could happen to you is actually uh, uh, rejection. Mm. You know, Sam, uh, we like that, but it's not for us. Okay. Um, or they'll say, oh, it's ugly looking. I've actually had somebody say that to me, ugly looking thing I've ever seen. So what happens is when you get when you you get two kinds of uh, reactions. One is completely ignored, and then two is they say we don't want it. So when somebody says they don't want it, um, remember rejection is just simply feedback. So what I would say is, you know, uh, as soon as I get the rejection, whether it's a in an envelope form or a fax, uh, or like sometimes they'll leave you a little voicemail. And I would say, oh, my God, thank you so much for getting back to me. Um, I understand you don't want it. But first of all, I want to thank you because most people don't even take the time to, you know, to send me that because at least I can, you know, take you off my list. But um, I just want if since you did indulge me with this rejection letter, um, is there, you know, what can I do so that I can improve myself? You know, I understand that stores like you probably wouldn't want it. But, you know, do you have any other suggestions or do you think there was anything in there that was even close to, you know, hitting the mark. And if you can do that, I would really appreciate it. You know, I'd be very grateful. So what happens is she'll, you know, the buyer, a lot of times they say, I don't want it because they don't know you. They haven't even looked at it. So at that point, they're like, oh, you know, uh, when you get a nice person who's busy and she might like, you know, hold on just one sec. Let me, you know, let me, she wants to get you off your back for good. <laughs> okay. So she's trying to give you this feedback. So you just get off, get her off. Mm. And so she'll say, you know, um, on page four, you know, you had this, um, you know, earrings. They're way too heavy for most people. They look like, you know, now she's looking at a drawing. Now she's not, she hasn't even held it yet. Uh, but, you know, um, I love the design, but I think it's very heavy and, you know, it's going to be very expensive. 
And I'll say, oh, so, um, you know, so it's, it's, you love the design, but, you know, how about if I scale it down? Or how about if I can tell you, I can make that same look that is going to be very super light because we can actually carve out all the gold. And because we're carving out all the gold, it's actually going to be less money than uh, you think it is. Um, so let me get back to work. And, um, you know, when I do get it perfected, I'll, you know, I'll get back to you. Do you know, a lot of times I will send her the same one that she had before. Suddenly then, it's better now. <laughs> yeah, they don't even realize it. Same one she had before. And then I'll give her a scaled down version of it. And, um, you know, I send it to her like three weeks later. Because I wanted to think I worked on this whole thing forever. And they'll get back to you and say, oh, my God, I love it. You know, you're either that or they'll say, you know, I love that. But, you know, you know, is it going to be expensive? So you start a dialogue again when you ask them for their opinion, when you ask them to help you, you'd be surprised how many times you're saying, I'm not looking for a sale. I just want you to help me so that I can improve myself. Uh, and if you could help me with that, I'd be forever grateful. You know, you're going to get about, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. I got to a point where my conversion rate was upwards of 80%. That's huge. Yeah, that's that's near impossible with sales. That's one yeah, thing I was going to ask huge. you is everyone mm -hmm. sells differently. Like, how were you selling? But clearly there's, yeah. there's some kind of secret source you've got there to get to 80% closing. Yeah, yeah. 80%. And I got to the point where when I trained my people later on is this, I say, you know what? I don't care how much the order is. You know, if you walk into a major department store chain, like a, like a Zales or, you know, or, or um, let's say you walk into Harrods and um, you get, you know, your salesperson gets a $30,000 order. Mm. Yeah, it's great. It's a huge order, okay, for a small business. But I say, well, how much does, does uh, Harrods do in total business in jewelry? Um, I don't know, $800 million. Well, then you need to go back. <laughs> and in our category, in our category, if she's writing $100 million orders, this was throwaway money. You know, go back and find out. I mean, if they're doing $100 million, you know, you need to get a good 10, 10 20%. Go back and find out what, what other people are doing. And um, the other thing I learned is basically, if you want to get those huge department stores, the only thing they really want is how much money am I going to make off of this brand? Okay, that's really what they want. They don't really care. It, it, they don't even look at the stuff. If you give them a marketing plan, hey, you know what? You know, I'm going to promote it. I'm going to do, you know, whatever. Or um, this is something that, so since I don't have a way to promote it better than they can, because remember in the old days before social media, we didn't have anything. Mm. Um, how do I then tell her she can make a lot of money? Well, a lot of times you can do all this research and say, for example, you know what? I, I used to do this at, uh, you know, here in America. I'd go to the Neiman Marcus in, uh, um, that's like our version of Harrods at that time, yeah. um, on Rodeo Drive. I would sit there, you know, stand there. I'd go, go to the uh, manager and I would say, you know what? I stood here and watched, you know, people interact with your uh, salespeople, you know, kind of overheard conversations. And I see that your basics business, you know, your, you know, a business in florals, these are great and you did a great job. And I just like, so I wanted to buy them. They're just beautiful. But what I found out was that, you know, your bracelet section, a lot of, you know, it's like a lot, nine out of 10 people want to try it, they, you know, and then they don't buy it. So I think that, you know, this whole bracelet section area could be expanded because, you know, you might, you're, you're only offering like 10 styles. And so I'm not asking you to, you know, 
disconnect yourself from any other vendor because you're, they're, they're, they're servicing you really well. But I think I see an opportunity for you to start testing this. I mean, and you know, in reality, they're not going to give you a whole case anyway. So I'll just say, just give me six inches, just six to seven inches of space. And, you know, so test it out because I think, and you know, she will, t- she told me, you know, you're right. That bracelet business is something I don't understand. Like, you know, this is my vendor. I've tried so many vendors. Just, I just can't get it. Like, you know, the Macy's people, everybody else is, you know, this is a hot category, but I haven't cracked it. So go for it. So you get in the door and then, you know, the idea is that you eventually keep going out. So, you know, you, you know, I eventually became their number one vendor. So a lot of times it's a, you, you gotta be flexible. You have to, you know, again, I'm servicing my customer. I'm having, fixing a problem for her. She had a problem and I identified it. But, you know, sitting at home thinking, oh my God, I got the best product in the world and why isn't she buying? That's not going to work. Yeah, because I feel like for you, where where you kind of maybe subconsciously or even consciously have made your business a success is you're very aware of your weak points, you know, so, oh, I don't have money or I don't have, you know, access to buyers. And you would find your kind of like backdoor hacks and ways in. One thing that I've also kind of noticed by you is that you have like a lot of business savvy. And so is that something that you kind of like learn along the way or is it like, did you have a mentor to begin with? Like, I, I'm always curious about how people get to the level of business brains that they get to. And you clearly had a lot from day one. By being a great listener, I think when people reject you, um, you know, coming from my background, you know, coming to America when I was a kid and being rejected a lot. Um, you know, the kids, when you don't speak any English and you have no money um, and you don't really seem to have a lot of things to offer. My, my father didn't come to my school with some fancy car or anything. I had to walk home. Um, you you kind of live with rejection as, as part of life. It's not like, oh, my God, that, you know, nobody wants me. Um, it's like, what can I do to help myself? Uh, what can I do to, you know, have people like interested in you? So there was this great uh, quote by Maya Angelou, and that is, um, well, she's got a lot of great quotes, but the one that is relevant to how I built my business is um, is something like, uh, people forget what you've said, people forget what you've done, but they'll never forget how, how you made them feel. So whether they're a buyer or my ultimate user, so later on down the road when I uh, was on TV, this was a very, very big point because when you're on TV and people, you know, think, oh my gosh, she's a celebrity, she's a star. I mean, they should do her own groceries, all this stuff. And uh, when, um, so they expect you to be a little bit snobby. They expect you to be a little bit uh, kind of aloof or unapproachable. Um, I would go on, you know, like a person before me, so usually we're on jewelry day. So there's a jeweler before me, the jeweler after me, because I, I can't have 24 hours. So, you know, there'll be somebody before me and I'll have, a, I'll come in, I'll come on for like a three hour block because mm-hmm. I had a huge business in prime time. So the person before me might come in and say, oh my God, you know, I just received the, you know, the, the best designer award, you know, the, by American Jewelers Association. And, you know, and I went to, um, you know, I was at the after party at the Grammys and, you know, I was wearing these designs and people just loved it. And but just all over, here's a picture of it. And they'll, they'll always just show it to, and they'll say, you know, and, and you know what, I designed these pieces, you know, they're just great for Hollywood. They're great for you. And, you know, you can buy them today for whatever. Now, I know some of those people don't say that because they're ostentatious and egotistical. They say it because they think that they can get respect from the customer, that you're a real designer, you're really famous people. Okay. That's one, somebody, you know, some people believe that. And some people do it because they are egotistical. 
But what I do is I'll come on and say, hey, you know, Thanksgiving is here. And you know what? I know that you love that because this is finally, this is the time of the year when you get together with your loved ones, your family, your whole family gets together, uh, you know, in front of an amazing meal. And when you get to do that. I see what you're doing. You're saying you, 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 and you're putting the person in the center of your kind of speech pattern or your sales pitch. Right. So when you say, when you do that, you want to look adorable. You want to have a little glow. You want to sparkle a little bit, but you don't want to be ostentatious. You don't want to make anybody else look bad. Mm. You know, hey, what's wrong with treating yourself to something little, you know, a, a, a little pick me up. And they happen to be very beautiful, by the way, and things that you're going to love, little butterflies, little hummingbirds, you know, these are beautiful collections where we can celebrate time, can celebrate love. And guess what? I know money's tight. And I know that, you know, um, if you want, you, you want to spend your money wisely. So today we do have everything at 25% off. And when you use, you know, value pay or whatever, you, you can get it home for 20 bucks. So, and by the way, you know, when you're done with that, the, you know, you could leave because it's jewelry, you could leave it onto your future generations. So again, you know, this is an amazing buy for you. So you use the word eight times for, you know, the two times you use the word I. Now I disappear completely in that, in that conversation. Uh, but what happens is how you made them feel. It's the first time the audience listens to somebody and go, oh my God, the, the person cares about me. I want to know what is she doing I want to know who she is because she knows me. And then when they go to my website, that's where the bio comes in with all the, you know, like all the accomplishments I had. Now, when I contact buyers, like buyers of department stores, you know, you, the first thing I always do is I compliment them. Mm. You know, I love the collection you have and the collection you have it. it and you're not just giving empty praises. Um, you'll say something like, you know what? Um, it's a beautifully done collection. It tells you a beautiful story about, you know, about, you know, the survival animals of Africa because it was a, it could be like an animal collection. And uh, the symbolism on this is beautiful and I love it. And I'm sure it does really well for you. Um, you know, and when I look at this other collection, it's priced really well, it's merchandised really well. And I think your people are doing a great job on that. And I would love to be on the winning train. I would love, you know, to be a part of your success. And, you know, I see that you are not really handling, there is a little void. I see a little window of opportunity to improve. Now, this buyer, remember, is being told every day by her boss, like, you know, that bomb, that bomb. Because remember, 50% of the stuff she buys is going to bomb. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, and she's like scared about her job. And then the, this vendor comes in instead of saying, bye, bye, bye from me because I'm the best. You're complimenting her all this time. You know, I'm going to learn from you. I want some feedback. You know, this idea that you care about what they think, what their day is like, and that you love them for all the things that they're doing. While acknowledging that there is improvement, I mean, you can't believe just just that shift in attitude and and tone, how much more you can accomplish. I mean, I think I I opened all the doors with just that mentality. Yeah. Nothing came easy for me. Trust me, like I didn't you know have anything. So you know to go from zero to nine figures, and by the way, I did this with no investors, no mentors, and uh, no advertising. Yeah, that's you just you worked. Uh, you worked your heart and soul and you just put it into the business what brings you the most joy about working with jewelry and in the industry that you do you know uh jewelry is um um, that's a really good question um the reason why i did i chose jewelry um as the you know my entrepreneurship journey is this uh in 
in Korea, jewelry was sold. Jewelry is actually um, the first piece of jewelry ever created in human history was actually in Africa as a hoop earring because it was like to um, sort of um, indicate which tribe you belong to kind of. Um, so basically, jewelry was sold to celebrate milestones, celebrate, um, you know, the people that you're with, um, you know, all these things. It's, it's still being sold that way. You know, think about who buys jewelry, getting married, anniversary, birthdays. These are all important milestones in your life. And yet jewelry was being sold here in America, mostly for snob appeal. When I got into the business, it was like, oh, I bought this at Harrods for, you know, uh, two carats for $50,000. Or I got this at, you know, Tiffany's for X amount. Um, and the poor people didn't really have, you know, they got this little quarter carat thing at Walmart on, on whatever, and they were kind of looked down upon. And uh, so when I first came, I was actually confused as to why they didn't have beautiful uh, expressive jewelry, like, you know, beautiful florals or beautiful, you know, waterfalls. And none of these things uh, that symbolize who you are, what milestone you are celebrating and why that is important to you and how you can memorialize it. They didn't have that. So because I was able to draw, um, cause when I didn't speak English, I had to draw things out to talk to people, you know, the first year, um, I thought, thought that there was a huge need for um, jewelry that actually personified who you were and how you celebrated. It's like when you get married, you know, uh, your love story, your, you and your fiance or, you know, uh, before you get married, uh, you have a unique love story, how you met, what makes that person special, because not no two people are alike. Mm. And yet um, most people get married with a. Uh, a ring that was designed by somebody that you don't know. Uh, and they sold like, I don't know, so several million pieces of it. Why should you settle for that? So I started uh, basically marketing to women who had a little bit more money than before, but they didn't want to waste it. Like, you know, just for a snob appeal. So the, the messaging was very clear. Uh, my purpose was very clear. And um, I always dealt with everybody with a lot of respect and honesty. And I was willing to outwork anybody and everybody. And, and really learn, you know, just listen from them and get their feedback. And I would say that all those buyers that I, that rejected me actually shaped my jewelry collection. You know, they helped me even though in their process of rejecting me. And um, so it's a beautiful story. And um, I, you know, now what I do, what gives me most joy is that um, I am now on a mission to help create 1 million millionaires in the next five years. Uh, and I do that with my book, which um, there's no secrets, no secret sauces. There's no real life hacks. I mean, there's, it's just real methods that I've used to grow. And um, I'm not somebody who likes to brag about myself or talk about myself because that's not who I am. But you can't argue with zero to nine figures. Here's a few more words from Victoria. Best place to come to is victoriawick.com, uh, victoria.wick, W-I-E-C-K.com. It tells you about my books, my jewelry designs, and all the free courses. Thank you for listening to People Explained. New episodes come out every Monday. We would appreciate it if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts and shared this episode with a friend.